Well, let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have completed the section regarding the subordination and equality of women that we found in verses 2 through 16. Now we're picking up the next section, which is verses 17 through 34, or 17 through the end of the chapter. And it has to do with the Lord's Supper, celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, just to let you know that these things are not planned out in such a way that I pick a particular message and then something else happens that coincides with it, because next week we will be sharing in the Lord's Supper. So it would be easy to say, well, why didn't you just wait till next week to preach this message? Because I wanted to have something to preach this morning. (laughs) And this is where we are. So we just pick up where we stop and we pick up once again and take off and take another section of this. Very familiar territory for us because every time we share the Lord's Supper, I use 1 Corinthians 11 to uh, share from this passage. But, and I've even mentioned some of the problems that exist, and we're going to go into those in some detail today. But beginning at verse 17, I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter. It says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, When you're eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Now, if you remember, we have already talked briefly about the Lord's Supper, and it was in chapter 10. And as I shared with you, chapter 10's context and chapter 11's context are entirely different. In chapter 10, you remember he was talking about if they participated in the sacrifices and the worship of idols and those meals that were for that purpose, then they are bringing that in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And that's why he asked the question in chapter 10 and verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then, of course, he goes into the nation of Israel, and he mentions it again. He says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so that's that context. Now we get into chapter 11 and we have an entirely different context. And you heard it as we were reading verses 17 and following of some of the problems that were there, some of the perversion that was taking place. 
Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church, that they continued in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, but it also tells us that they continued in the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, the Lord's Supper was a continual practice of the early church, the first church. In fact, they did this daily. They went from house to house. Now, if you remember, they didn't have any building, so they met in homes. And they went from one home to another home to another home. And this was the four things that they did. They taught the apostles' doctrine. They fellowshiped together. They broke bread together or had the Lord's Supper, and they prayed. They didn't have Sunday school. They didn't have superintendents. Uh, in most cases, they only had one leader until there were other leaders that were mature enough to serve in those capacities. But this is what the church did. It was very simplistic, but they were teaching the apostles' doctrine. That was number one and foremost at the list. That doesn't mean that these other things were not important, because they were. Sharing in the Lord's Supper is extremely important. If it wasn't important, then we wouldn't have heard the warning toward the end of it. That when you eat of this, you make sure that you examine yourselves first so that you do not take of it in an unworthy manner. But we're going to talk about what all that means. But again, this was a continual practice of the early church, and it is today. Now that phrase, the breaking of bread, is only used by Luke, and it refers either to an ordinary meal or it refers to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now when we add the term supper Depnon to it, that's the normal word that was used for the evening meal. And so when you say the Lord's Supper, that gives it a special and much greater significance. This was actually a genuine meal. It's where the church celebrated what they called the love feast. These monthly meals that we were doing before the COVID started, that would be a love feast that we were doing. The only difference would be what we were doing And sharing a meal together is that we didn't share in the Lord's Supper at the same time. The early church did this together. This was something that was all part of that meal. And there was four cups passed at that meal. And the third one was the cup that was passed used for the Lord's Supper. And that's why when you read all of this, this was all merged together. But after the problems and the perversion of it, they separated the Lord's Supper from that love feast. But at this point, it's still together. And as I said, it was a very genuine meal, and it was followed by the communion. Now, if you look there at verse 20, the Apostle Paul refers to this, and he calls it the Lord's Supper. And what we read in verses 17, when we started, we heard his rebuke of the Corinthians' perversion of it. Of course, it seems that there have always been problems plagued with two of the ordinances of the church, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are those who want to say that baptism saves and those who say that the Lord's Supper literally becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. There are actually four views concerning the Lord's Supper. I want to share them with you, and I want to share with you some of the problems that come with those views. One of the views is the Roman Catholic view, and you probably have heard this term, transubstantiation. That word literally means a change of substance. And it teaches, as I quote, that a miracle takes place at the Eucharist or the Mass, in which the elements of the breaking of, or the elements of the bread and the wine are actually changed into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Creed of Pope Pius IV, he said this, and I quote, I profess that in the Mass, is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead. And there's truly, really, and substantially the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is a conversion of the whole substance of the wine into the blood. This is what Catholics teach today. This is what is observed in the Mass when they take of the Eucharist. They believe that these elements literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. No wonder when Martin Luther was doing this and he was shaking and he spilled some of the wine. His father was there in the audience that day and was highly disappointed in him. But the reason why he was shaking was because he literally thought he was handling the body and the blood 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what would you do if you believed that? Well, there's some people today that don't do anything. Some people that take of communion and they do their merry thing the rest of the day and the rest of the week and it has no effect on their life. But I tell you, these guys that were in these monasteries, they were a different kind of breed of people. They were there for the reason of the Word of God and they were there for the reason of a pious, you know, solidary kind of life. And they did have different views. And again, this was all part of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther was still part of the Catholic Church at that point. There was not a Protestant Reformation yet. But again, during that time, this is how he viewed this. Now, his view changed, obviously, after he became a believer. And most of the time, that is what happens. Our views do change. And we become more conformed to the Christian worldview, more conformed to the Bible. But think about this. As the priest consecrates the elements, their substance is changed from bread to wine to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And so in Catholic teaching, the participant is actually partaking of the body of Christ. They claim that this is the teaching of John 6, 32 to 58. We'll look at that in just a moment too. So if you ever ask a Catholic when you're witnessing to them, have you received Christ? And they say yes, and you're going, how can you say yes? This is what they mean. This is what Martin, uh, Walter Martin used to call double talk. The word received to them means something totally different to us. When we talk about receiving Christ, we're not talking about the communion. We're talking about receiving the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and you repenting and submitting your life to Him. And again, what they mean is receiving the Eucharist in the Mass. That's what they mean. And as I said, there are several problems with this view. First, it views the work of Christ as being unfinished. Now, that shouldn't be strange to anyone because they still put up a cross with Christ on it. And that indicates unfinished work. You don't find Protestant churches doing that. They put up a cross with Jesus off the cross. They mention the tomb. They mention the resurrection. They give that balance. And as I've shared with you on many times when you preach the gospel, you need to talk about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ or you have an incomplete gospel. You have to talk about the bad news of sin as well as the good news of the gospel. Or again, it's incomplete. And so in this Mass, this communion, this Eucharist, you have this sacrifice continuing. But Christ declared in John 19.30 to telestai, which means it is finished. His work of redemption of the, on the cross was finished, never to be repeated again. But in this mask, if this is becoming the literal body and blood and divinity of Jesus Christ, that every time that they do the mask, he's being re-sacrificed over and over. That's saying that the work is not finished. So that is problematic. Even the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 10 to 14, talked about the work of Christ being finished. So that's one of the first problems. Second problem that I would say would be this, is that his human body would have to be omnipresent if this teaching were true. And his human body wasn't. His human body was limited. It has spatial limitation, just as your human body has spatial limitation. You and I can't be everywhere at the same time, can we? Right now you're here. And you're sitting in the congregation here at Eastport Baptist Church. You're not sitting at your house, though your brain may be there. But your body's right here, right? Well, think about this. Christ is omnipresent. But when he took on a human body, that was a localized, spacious body. So that would be a problem. His body is actually localized in heaven, according to Acts 7, verse 56. Because if you remember when Stephen was being martyred, he looks up to heaven and he says he sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God. So that would be, as I said, problematic if we're saying his human body is everywhere. A third problem would be in instituting the supper, Christ was using a common figure of speech. It was a metaphor. He says, this is my body. That's a metaphor. And when he referred to the cup, this is my blood. 
He was physically present, yet he was distinct from the elements. So how does that work out? If he's saying that this literally is changed into the body and the blood and the divinity of Christ, how does that work out if he's standing right there and saying this to them? Well, it had to be a metaphor. Just like in John chapter 6, when he said to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That was a vivid picture of saving faith and the kind of relationship that he called for. Now, if you insist that this is literal language, then you certainly do uh, harm to interpretation and hermeneutics. But again, it is problematic to take that kind of view. The fourth problem that I would say is it was forbidden for Jews to drink blood. Leviticus 17, verses 10 to 16. Yet this is exactly what Jesus would be asking them to do if transubstantiation was what he intended. If he literally meant, eat my flesh and drink my blood, this would have violated Leviticus 17, 10 to 16. So as you can see, there's more problems than there are good. Now, a second view I would mention would be the Lutheran view. And that is called consubstantiation. And that means that Jesus' body and blood are actually present in the elements, but the bread and the wine remain as such. They do not change into a literal body and blood, as would be taught in Roman Catholic theology. They would differ in the sense and rejecting the notion of the perpetual sacrifice of Christ in the Eucharist, and they would say it would be some type of grace that would be imparted to it. And, of course, the problem with that view is the failure to recognize, again, Jesus' figure of speech and saying that this is my body. Now, a third view would be a Reformed view. That would pick up Presbyterians and the Reformed Church. Some call this the Calvinistic view. And uh, this view basically teaches and rejects even the notion of the literal presence of Christ in any sense. And in this, you have similar to the memorial view, which is the Baptist view, but the view itself does not emphasize, or I'm sorry, it does emphasize the present spiritual work of Christ. Calvin taught that Christ is present and enjoyed in his entire person, both body and blood. He emphasized the mystical communion of believers with the entire person of the Redeemer, the body and blood of Christ, though absent and locally present only in heaven. And he says this, that communicate a life-giving influence to the believer. So basically, because of these mystical elements that he is mentioning, he is basically talking about a grace that is received, as it even says in his commentary, that's similar to receiving through the word of God, which would add to the effectiveness of the word. So there's some kind of grace being parted there, some kind of grace being parted there in the Lutheran view, even though the literal view of the body and the presence of the Lord being there is not there in the Lutheran or the Reformed view. Now, the memorial view, that's by Baptist and Mennonites. It's also referred to as the Zwinglian view because of the Swiss reformer uh, Zwingli. That's considered actually a view that, as I said, people take today. We call it a memorial view because if you look there in 1 Corinthians 11... And if you look there at verse 24 and verse 25, what does he say at the bottom of those two verses? Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance. That's memorial. And so that view emphasizes that the participants demonstrate faith in the death of Christ through this symbolic activity. Now that's the view that we've taken that's the view I've always believed. I haven't been able to see these other views. As I said, there's problems with these other views. Now, in the mid-1500s, when they would take of the Lord's Supper, and they would take it as being the literal body and blood of Jesus, that was called a period that was marked by brutality. Because there were people who said that that phrase, the body and blood of Jesus, is figurative. So think about this. You've got one group saying this is figurative language, and another group saying, no, this is not figurative language, that's going to create an age of brutality. That's going to create problems, friction between the two groups. Who was the dominating religion leading during that time? The Catholic Church. 
the, quote, mother church, as they referred to it, led by the Pope. And, of course, the Pope, anything that he said was considered ex cathedra, which basically meant speaking from the chair. And if he spoke ex cathedra, it was like coming from the mouth of God. That's how they viewed that. In fact, many still view it that way today. John Piper makes a very interesting observation about this period. He says, quote, It would do well to admit that if their age was marked by brutality, ours is marked by superficiality. They may have weighed things differently than we would, but it may be that we have lost the capacity to feel weighty truth at all. That's a good statement. Because you have to ask the question, why has the church become superficial concerning the Lord's Supper? Or why has the church become superficial about many things in the church? Why do we treat it so lightly? Does it have to do with how often that we do it? Well, again, some people say if you do it every week, then it's going to take away the significance of it. It won't be treated seriously. But what about people that don't treat it seriously when it's done monthly or quarterly? I can't, I can't see going any further than quarterly. You know, once every three months. I mean, we're told to do this in remembrance of Christ. We're told that each time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. How often should we be doing that? How often should we be remembering the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection? Daily. If we're superficial to the Word of God, everything else will trickle downward from that point. It's just like the seven churches in Revelation. You know, if you lose your first love, you've lost everything. You become compromising, worldly, dead, like the church of Thyatira. Some become apostate. You're not a suffering church. You're not an, a faithful church if you lose your first love because those two characteristics only reside in those who are faithful, those who are loving, those who have Christ first. So superficiality, maybe we could use another word, carnality. These are things we fight against every day, right? So bringing the Lord's Supper back to every time the church meets might be a plus. To teach you not to be superficial about this matter. To teach you to constantly bear in mind the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if anything, think of it about it being a communion with the Lord. That you're identifying with what He's saying there, to do this in remembrance of me. You're identifying with Him in that Wonderful supper that we will have together with him when the bride of the church, or the church which is the bride of Christ, has the marriage supper of the Lamb with Christ. And you remember, Jesus wouldn't take of the, the fruit or the bread at that last supper he had with the disciples. He said he would do it with them in the kingdom. So that was looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long for these things, you know? And I think we need to talk about them more and more to just keep our minds where they need to be because, my goodness, it doesn't take much to get your mind off the right things with what's going on around us, right? Constantly bombarded by the, the mess that's going on in our world. You can't turn on the TV and watch news for five seconds without some horrible thing being shouted at you or shown to you in, in images. And then you have all that in your mind. And then we become callous to all that stuff because we hear it all the time. And then when they start showing dead bodies and all, we don't have any feeling about that because we get to see it all the time on TV. You need VidAngel. I use VidAngel when I watch TV and it works only with certain networks, but you can, you can turn on filters and you can tell it not to show you stuff that you don't want to see or, or hear things you don't want to hear. And so we, we block out any kind of sex scenes. Of course, we don't want to see that. We block out murders. And sometimes it takes out so much stuff, and when they're talking, because it takes out bad language, you don't know what they just said. Because everything apparently they said was bad language. So you don't know where you're at in the whole story. But I would rather have that than to walk away and have that mess in my head. I don't need that. Now, there are five references to the Lord's Supper. You have Matthew 26, 17 to 30. You have Mark 14, 1 to 26. You have Luke 22, 1 to 20. All three of those mention this being the Lord's Supper. Then you have a fourth one. It's not called the Lord's Supper, but if you examine what's taking place and it matches the other three Gospels, that's John 13. Remember John 13 when Jesus washed their feet? 
That was the whole scenario that was taking place there. The fifth view is found in these verses that we're looking at at this point. Some conservative scholars actually believe that 1 Corinthians was probably written before the Gospels. And if that's true, then Paul's account here is the first biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And it includes direct quotations from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's perfectly consistent with the gospel accounts. But Paul's revelation most likely was received from the Lord directly, not through the other apostles. You remember in Galatians 1, where he mentioned being in the desert of Arabia for a period of time. And he received instruction from the Lord himself. All the gospel accounts tell us that this is the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Luke uses those terms interchangeably to mean the same thing in Luke 22 and verse 1. If you remember the Passover celebration, it began the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Mosaic law required that sacrificial lambs for Passover be selected on the tenth day of the first month and that the lamb be kept in the household until it was sacrificed on the fourteenth day. That's Exodus 12, verses 2 through 6. It's interesting that during this time... 250,000 sacrificial lambs were slain during a typical Passover in Jesus' day. Think about this. When Jesus crossed over the brook Kidron, there would have been blood running in that brook. During that Passover and the sacrifice of all those lambs, and wouldn't that be a vivid reminder to him that he was the Passover lamb who was about to give his life for the ransom of many? So before the lambs had to be slaughtered, within a 24-hour period, you had an enormous amount of blood that poured from the altar in a very short period of time. Warren Wearsby, he says this, Peter and John would have had to secure the bread and the bitter herbs as well as the wine for the feast. They would have had to find a perfect lamb, and then they had the lamb slain in the court of the temple and the blood put on the altar. Then the lamb would be roasted whole, and then the feast would be ready. It was also during this time in Luke 22 where Jesus says, The hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. So that would be at the same time. Now, according to verse 23, the disciples began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And verse 24 says that there was a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom. Here Jesus is about to go to the cross. They have Passover taking place. They have 250,000 lambs being slain, which is a vivid, as I said, reminder of sin, the sacrifice of sin. And, of course, the sacrifices that would need to be made on behalf of us and them in order for them to be forgiven of their sin. That would have been a vivid picture to see all of this taking place. And then to hear them arguing over who's the greatest. Well, that's callous. In the year that Jesus was crucified, whether you take it as AD 30 or AD 33, the 10th of Nisan was the Monday of the Passover week. Therefore, although the incident is not mentioned in the Gospels, the disciples would have selected a lamb on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, perhaps keeping it at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, where they were staying. Now, when Paul writes about this, He doesn't move straight into it. He first has to talk about the perversion of the Lord's Supper. We read that in verses 17 through 22. But look at verse 17 because he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Wow, what a statement to be made of the church. You're coming together. It's not for the better. It's literally for evil. The word he uses for worse literally means evil. It's a comparative term to the Greek word kakos. And it means evil. 
So it wasn't praiseworthy. He says, I don't give you this praise, but I give you this instruction. And this instruction, the word he uses here, paragelo, it means a command. Specifically, to give a charge or to give an order. I'm giving you this command that when you come together, you come together for better, not for worse. But unfortunately, it is for the worse. I'm not giving you any praise because, again, what you're doing is evil. It is moral evil. Instead of the celebrations being a time of loving fellowship and spiritual enrichment, they involved themselves in selfish indulgence. They were shaming the poor brethren. They were mocking the Lord's sacrificial death. They were scandalizing the church before the unbelieving world. I mean, look at verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions that exist among you. And in part, I believe it. This is the word schismatic. It means schisms. There are schisms among you. Now, if you'll go with me to, back to chapter 1, the very first thing that he addressed was the divisions. Go with me to chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then, of course, he tells us about these divisions. You have those who are saying that they are of Paul, those who are of Apollos, those who are of Cephas, those who are saying that they are of Christ. You had pastor worship going on, if you will. So that was a problem. And in chapter 3, Paul refers to this as fleshliness or carnality. He says in verse 3, For you are still fleshly. For there, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of a Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not Acting like mere men. So that was a problem. And then, of course, he says in verse 19 that there were factions. He says, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So you have divisions and factions. You have jealousy, strife, contentions. I'm telling you, just about each chapter, he's dealing with some kind of issue going on. And this was the church. If anybody thinks that there's a perfect church, read 1 Corinthians. There is not a perfect church. And if you think you're perfect, please don't go anywhere. You'll mess it up. But we're not, are we? And notice also he says here, Therefore, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, each one takes his own supper before, and I literally mean it means the poor. Again, there were poor Christians and rich Christians in the church. This is there are in any church. You have wealthy and poor. You have some that have more and some that have less. Well, what are we supposed to do to the ones who have less? We're to take care of them, aren't we? We're to help provide for them. But what was taking place in this love feast is that the rich, they were hoarding all the food. And so the poor weren't even getting any of it. And to top that, they were getting drunk. They were lingering long at the wine. They must have had the strong drink there. You know, that was the... The kind that if, if you were a barbarian, if you were someone who really was an alcoholic, you drank the strong drink. If you were one who was a secret alcoholic, you drank the one that was mixed heavily with water. And it would take a long time for you to get any kind of you know, effect from that because there was so much concentration of water in it. Your bladder actually would give out a few times before you could get some kind of euphoria over that. So he says here that when they came together, it wasn't to eat the Lord's Supper because each one was taking his own food before the poor. And then you had another one drunk. 
I mean, this is crazy. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Listen, if you're hungry, stay at home and eat there. But again, you have to remember, you had the love feast and you had the Lord's Supper merged together. Love feast first, then the communion. So think about this whole context, this whole scenario. Think about this if we were doing this in the fellowship hall and we had our love feast like we used to do. We need to have them again. <laughs> but like we used to do, we'd sit there and we'd eat and everything. Well, what if we went ahead of everybody and anybody that was poor in the fellowship was at the, always at the end of the line and by the time they got around to where the food was, most of it was gone. I mean, how would that poor person feel? You know, all we're thinking about at that moment is, hey, I got my food. You worry about your food. Should have got here sooner, buddy. Should have gotten in line first. You're over there talking. Whatever the reason is. But that should never be the case. And it's, it hasn't been here, so I'm not saying it has been. I know everybody has been so gracious. Half the time, everybody's trying to worry about who's going to go first. Nobody goes. <laughs> you go first. No, 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 you go first. No, I insist you go first. No, you go first. Okay, I'll go. What are you going first for? Well, you just told me to. I didn't mean it. But notice he says here, by doing this, they despise the church of God. They are shaming those who have nothing. That's horrible. They're shaming those who have nothing. Again, he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? No. In this, I do not praise you. I mean, think about this. Divisions. Factions, eating ahead of the poor, not even considering the poor, being drunk, bringing shame to the church, bringing shame to those poor believers, despising the church of God and everything the church stands for. No, he says, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the true purpose. But let me give you some things to think about as we talk about the purpose. First of all, we could say one of the purposes is fellowship. Just thinking of the fact that this combination of love feast and the Lord's Supper would contribute to an atmosphere of fellowship, right? And that's what it does when we're together. We have fellowship with one another. And so it says in verses 20 and through 22 that the church came together to eat the love feast. And as I said, it consisted of that evening meal followed by the communion. And so that was a place of fellowship, but the Corinthians were perverting it. These abuses eventually forced the two to separate. And that's why we don't do it together. A third or second reason I would give would be historical. And that's what I just read to you. As uh, he mentions there in verse 23 through 26, this is actually historical. And if you'll notice the verse, first part of verse 23, Paul is making a direct claim to revelation from the Lord Jesus on the origin of the Lord's Supper. He says, for I paralambano, I receive. That's an aorist tense pointing to back to a situation. It means to take to oneself. I took this revelation to myself at this point in time when it was revealed to me. Again, maybe on the... In the desert of Arabia, in Galatians 1. But what did he receive? Well, he says there that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. That gives a historical setting. And it's interesting that many of the believers may not have known that historical setting until Paul reveals it here. Because, again, if this was written before the Gospels, there's no other account to speak of the Lord's Supper than what we just read here. So this would be historical. 
Now, again, when you look at the Passover meal, it began with the host pronouncing a blessing over the first cup of the red wine, and then he would pass it to the others that were present. And as I shared with you, there were four cups that were passed during that meal. After the first cup, they would drink bitter herbs dipped in a fruit sauce. They would eat that, and a message was given on the meaning of the Passover. And then they would sing the first part of a hymn, which was called the Hallel, which literally means praise. It's related to the word hallelujah, praise the Lord. They would sing that, and that would comprise Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And the first part that was sung was usually Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. After they would pass the second cup, the host would break and pass around the unleavened bread, Then the meal proper, which consisted of the roasted sacrificial lamb, was eaten. Then the third cup, after prayer, they would sing the rest of the Hillel. And then the fourth cup, which celebrated the coming kingdom, was drunk immediately before they left. But it was the third cup that Jesus blessed, and that became the cup of communion. In the same way, he took the cup... After supper, or after they had eaten, Luke twenty two twenty, and he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So there Jesus is making reference to it. And so after some, some brief words, Jesus would give a warning, he would give a rebuke. In Luke twenty two, twenty one and following, he'd give instruction, then the meal was concluded with the singing of a hymn. And we've ended that the same way, only because we're just following a pattern that's presented before us. So you have fellowship, you have it being historical, being a purpose. A third would be obedience. This ordinance was instituted by Jesus, right? We all share it together in obedience to the Lord Jesus. This is a command from the lips of the Lord himself. Sharing in the Lord's Supper is not an option for believers. Did you hear that? It's not an option. We must have communion on a regular basis if we're to be faithful to the Lord who bought us through the act that we called to remember. And so when you not partake of the Lord's Supper, it's sin. Let me help you out with something that's going on here. When he says, do this two times, it's an imperative in Greek. What's an imperative? Command. And I have seen so many people not take of the Lord's Supper for whatever reason. Mostly it's usually because they had some kind of bad week or bad morning. And maybe they haven't lived for the Lord like they should. And they don't feel worthy to take of the table. And I can understand that. I understand that. I've been there times before. But the text does not give you the freedom to sit back and not partake. The text puts an urgency on you to repent of that sin. Now, you should be repenting of the sin when it occurs, not waiting until the communion. And maybe you did, and maybe you're still feeling the residuals of that, you know, the guilt that comes with it, right? Even though you repented, you still feel the guilt of that sin, and you're carrying that, and you've got that weight on your shoulder, and all of a sudden you walk in and you go, oh boy, we're having communion today. And you're sitting there wrestling with whether you're going to take it or not. And you decide in your mind, I don't think I'm going to take it. I just don't feel worthy. And I don't want to take it in an unworthy manner, whatever that means, but I feel like that this is what it means. And so you don't take it. But you know what you've just done? You disobeyed His command right here. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Twice. So whatever you're feeling at that moment, you need to deal with it right then. And if it's something you need to confess to Christ, confess it to Christ. If it's something, like I said, you're feeling guilt over something that you did earlier in the week, then you need to trust in the promises of God that, like 1 John 1, 9 says, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have been forgiven. I think what's helpful at that point is looking at the, those passages that talk about being forgiven to help you. Well, if you'll notice here, he first gave thanks. That's where we get the word Eucharisteo or Eucharist. That's what some people refer to as the Lord's Supper. And it literally means to give thanks. So what should be accompanying the communion is thanksgiving. 
We should be giving thanks. And it says he took bread, verse 23, and it says he broke it. The bread represented the exodus, and it came to represent the body of Christ. In the Jewish mind, the body represented the whole person, not just the physical body. The word broken, you may have that in your translation. It doesn't appear in the better manuscripts, and there is problems with having that word there. Though the Romans would frequently break the legs of crucified victims in order to hasten their death, Jesus' legs were never broken. So to use a translation to say that his body was broken is not accurate. So it would be best to leave it out. It's left out in the New American Standard. So the best reading is, this is my body which is for you. And of course for you. Wow, those are the most beautiful terms of all of Scripture. I mean, think about this. His birth, his incarnate life was all for us. His death on the cross was for us. And every time we take it to communion, that's a reminder that he did this for us. Wonderful terms. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was for us. And then, of course, next he took the cup. Also, after supper, the cup had represented the lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost and the lentils, which now came to represent the blood of the Lamb of God, shed for the salvation of the world. And that was what took place. That's what Paul reveals in this direct revelation that he had received. So we have the purpose of fellowship as one of those uh, purposes. We have the purpose of obedience that we are to obey the Lord, we're to do this in remembrance. We have the purpose of it being historical. This is an historical account that actually took place. Paul received that direct revelation from God. And the next we would have remembrance. Again, he says, do this in remembrance to me two times. And in the Hebrew, for a Hebrew to remember, it meant much more than simply bringing something to their mind, merely to recall that it happened. To truly remember was to go back in one's mind Recapture as much of the reality and the significance of an event experienced as one possibly can. To remember Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross is to relive it with Him. Relive His life, His agony, His suffering, His death as much as is humanly possible. Now, I know some people don't want to read about it. This is a horrible death. I remember when The Passion of the Christ came out, that movie by Mel Gibson. Y'all remember that? I don't know if any of you saw it, but it was a big hype, you know, big fad going on during the time and all the churches, you know, going to see it. And I remember back then I chose not to see it because I felt like I didn't need to see that to enhance my relationship with Christ. And uh, I did some reading, of course, about it and what it was going to be all about. And the sad thing about it, now Mel Gibson's a Catholic, so it makes sense for him to major on the death of Christ and not major so much time on the resurrection They spent 30 seconds on the resurrection. The rest of the movie was about him being beaten and about him, you know, going to the cross. And I would say this about the movie. If anything could give us a vivid, and I know I keep using that word, but it seems to fit, a vivid picture of maybe what it was like and the agony that he experienced by being beaten and put on a cross, that movie captured it. I have never seen a movie of its kind because since then I have seen it. And I saw those scenes and, yeah, they're hard to look at. But if you think in your mind, there's a great, great possibility that this is exactly what he experienced. Because it certainly goes along with Isaiah 53. He was beaten beyond recognition. Didn't recognize him. And yet, some of these Hollywood movies that we have of the... This incident, we have Jesus coming out with just a little bit of blood on him. I don't know if you saw the passion of the Christ. He was covered. In fact, I was uh, uh, not—it'd be neat to talk to the actor. But now I was watching an interview of the actor. By the way, since he did that movie, he can't get any jobs in Hollywood now. And uh, he professes to be a a follower of Christ. Um, But he did say in some of the scenes, like when. When they were beating Christ, he actually did get hit a couple times. And he said it was horrible. But just to imagine what Jesus went through. 
But it changed his life playing that part, playing that role. Could you imagine the people on the set, lives of other people that may have been changed by witnessing some of that? So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not offering another sacrifice. We're not doing this again. We're remembering his once for all sacrifice for us. And we're rededicating ourselves to his obedient service. So it should be a a very serious moment, a grave moment that you come to the Lord's table. You don't treat it in an unworthy manner. You don't treat it as another meal. And this is what I would say about kids and their partaking of the Lord's table. Just ask them, what do they see the Lord's Supper as? If they think of it as something as a little meal, a little snack, then they shouldn't take it. It's just like baptism. If they think baptism is just like getting a bath, then they shouldn't be taking that either. Wait till they understand it. And I think it's going to be a different for each person, different age. As we talked about moral culpability. Look at verse 26. He mentions another purpose. And in that purpose, he mentions proclamation. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, who are we proclaiming the Lord's death to? Well, each time we do it, we're together, right? So we're proclaiming it to each other. Church have been proclaiming the Lord's death to each other, all carrying that communism, that oneness around the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. But you're also proclaiming it to the world. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the behalf of the unredeemed. Now, when you get down to verse 27, this is where you get into the preparation. Those who partake of the Lord's table are to prepare themselves. And we seek to do that. Because we do not want to take it in an unworthy manner. And unworthy, that Greek word means in an improper, careless manner. One could come to the table in many ways. It's common for people to participate in it ritualistically without participating with their minds and their hearts. They can go through the motions without going through any emotion. They can treat it lightly rather than treat it seriously. And many people can do the same thing with any part of the worship service. They can sing the songs. And because they know the songs so well, it's just words off their lips. It doesn't mean anything coming from their heart. They can believe it imparts grace or merit. They can believe that the ceremony itself, rather than the sacrifice, represents something that can keep them or save them. Many can come with a spirit of bitterness or hatred toward another believer or come with a sin in which they will not repent of. Listen, if any believer comes to the table with anything less than the loftiest thoughts of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and anything less than total love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, he comes unworthily. That's why you have in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, that if you're there offering your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, it says, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled with your brother, then come back and offer the gift. And how many times have we come to church and we've had something going on in our life that week, something going on in our mind where we're struggling with another person, we've got strife going on, Got some bitterness taking place there. Maybe even some hatred taking place there. How can I love that person? Look what that person keeps doing to me. How can I love them? I don't love them. I hate them. See, if we have thoughts like that, we have attitudes like that, don't come to the table and partake. Now, I I never and never will ask you if you choose not to partake, why? Because I believe that's between you and the Lord. I can't be obedient for you and make you take it. And therefore, it wouldn't be in the right spirit anyway if I tried to make you take it, right? Any more than trying to get a kid to understand that this, isn't, this is not a snack. <laughs> it's not something that we packed in our lunchbox and we pull it out now. We got a little bitty thing of bread and we chug it down with a little bitty thing of juice. Don't you have to chuckle in some of those services where they use a loaf of bread and people tear off and they're tearing off these big old pieces and then they got this little thing of juice to chase it down. Like, no, 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 you don't want that much. You want a little bitty piece. And I make sure we have unleavened, that we've been using this unleavened bread, and it tastes like styrofoam. How do you like that? 
But if we come in an unworthy manner, then we're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You've seen a lot of people in our in the news today trampling the American flag. They burn the flag. They stomp on it. They're not disrepresenting or dishonoring a piece of cloth. They're disrepresenting, disrepresenting or dishonoring the country that it represents. That's what's wrong with that whole thing going on. So to come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony. It dishonors the one in whose honor it is celebrated. At that point, you become guilty of dishonoring his body and his blood, which represent his total life and his work and his suffering and his death on our behalf. We become guilty of mocking, guilty of treating with indifference the very person of Jesus. And maybe you're saying, you know, I can't get rid of this feeling in my heart or this sin. I can't get rid of it yet. And I'm not going to take it to the table. But just remember, you just compounded your sin. You took one and you piled another one on top of it. It's called disobedience. In fact, they all could rank under that because that's what sin is. It's disobeying the Lord. God said, don't do that. And you do it anyway. That's disobedience. So what's he tell us to do? Well, in verse 28 to 34, he tells us to examine ourselves. Examine Dakamadzo, which means to scrutinize, test, prove yourself. A.T. Robinson says, test himself as he would a piece of metal to see if it's genuine. Such examination of one's motives would have made impossible the disgraceful scenes of verses 20 and following. If they were examining themselves, one of two things would have happened. They would have saw their sin and dealt with it then honor the Lord and honor the poor and not come to the table drunk. Or they would have done what they are guilty of. I believe that we have to give ourselves a thorough examination every time we do this. And as I said, this is good. So if if a church is doing this weekly and you think it's going to become ritualistic, think of the fact is that this is forcing you to think about your sin and to deal with it at that very moment, that's a good thing, right? But it could be ritualistic regardless of when you do it. You do it daily, do it weekly, do it monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, yearly, I mean, or semi-annually and then yearly. Whichever a church picks to do, it could become ritualistic at any point. So you have to guard yourself anyway, right? So we have to, again, examine ourselves. Our motives and our attitudes toward the Lord and toward His Word and toward His people and toward the communion service should all come under that private scrutiny by the Lord. So this would become then a special place of purifying the church. I know one church that every time they have communion, that's when they announce a third or a fourth step in church discipline to the congregation. Because the table, they're not only being a table of blessing, but also talking about sin. And so they would announce to the church that there's a person that's in unrepentant sin. They've been confronted privately. They've been confronted with two or three witnesses. They still will not repent. Now it's being told to the church for you to go and to get them to repent, to confront the situation. Listen, if you have a service like that, what does it do to the church? It's going to bring a purifying influence. You're talking about something that you are supposed to be avoiding. Now, there are consequences that if we do not examine ourselves, he says, that you eat and drink judgment to yourself, not discerning the Lord's body. And the word judgment is the word for chastening or discipline. And so to avoid God's judgment, one must properly discern and respond in the occasion that's being presented there. When you see that phrase that there are many who among you who are weak and sick and a number sleep, this is a reference to the different types of chastening that the Lord was using in the Corinthian church. Weak, sick, sleep, that's not a nap. Sleep is a euphemism for death. And they come in that order. You're weak, you're sick, you die. Unless you recover. 
And so it was used to speak of death metaphorically, like in John 11, in verse 11, to speak of Lazarus sleeping when he was dead. Or in Acts 7, verse 60, when Stephen died, it said he fell asleep. That's a euphemism for death. So what's the ultimate consequence of treating the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? Death. Death. That's the ultimate. And you say, well, that'd be awesome because I'd be with the Lord. But is that the way you want to go? Is that the testimony you want to leave behind? Well, look at the remedy. Verse 31. He says in verse 31, but if we would judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. This involves discerning what we are and what we ought to be. If we confess our sins, we confess our wrong motives and our wrong attitudes, then God's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Amen? And then, of course, he says after that, wait for one another. Well, what does that mean? So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. See, it's biblical that when we go back there to eat, we're waiting for one another. We just don't take off and start eating. We don't walk up to the line and just not form one and just go straight there and like some do at their dinner table or never sit down to eat at dinner or whatever. He says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Because when it came to this part, they shouldn't have been hungry anyway because they had a roasted lamb. But again, if they were coming and doing this before the poor could get there, then the poor were hungry. And if they're indulging themselves in so much wine, they're getting drunk. So he says to wait. Wait for one another. John Bunyan said this, as I conclude, such as are partakers of the Lord's Supper should inquire after participation what benefit that they had received thereby. In other words, when you're done with communion, ask yourself what benefit have you received from this. He said, there are some who before the duty take no pains to prepare themselves. And after the duty, they do not reflect on how they went, nor inquire what it is that they got. Reflection after the Lord's Supper is as necessary as examination before. What good have I gotten should be a question we should put to ourselves after every duty that we perform. Had I any warmth of affection in it? Have I any more love for God, more desires after Him, more ability to perform duty, to bear affliction, to resist temptation, to walk with God? It's really essential how you answer that. Are you a true follower of Jesus? Does that come from it? And in all honesty, none of this means anything until you are. And if any of you are here today and you haven't truly repented and you do act one way here and another way somewhere else, maybe you're not saved. Maybe today is the day of salvation. I mean, ask yourself, do I hate my sin? Do I mourn over my sin when I sin against the Lord? Again, I think that these are questions that we need to ask. Part of proving yourself, examining yourself. Because none of us want to do this in an unworthy manner, right? And the Bible even says faith without works is dead. So our life should match what we're saying. We say we belong to Him, then our life should show it. Not just people hear us say that. And usually how we say it, we say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. You know, that term wasn't used for a while. It didn't get used until Paul was ministering in Antioch and the people there saw how they were acting and they said they were acting just like Christ. Little Christ. That's what it means. But it's lost so much meaning today, has it? Not. I mean, you talk to Mormons, they say they're Christians. You talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they say they're Christians. I mean, it's just incredible. But really, our attitude, our behavior, 
gives us away. Jesus said, here's how all men will know that you belong to me when you have love for one another. Here's how they're going to know this. Here's how you're going to know that you belong to me when you keep my word. And the word that he uses there for keep, the tense he uses in 1 John 2 means keep on keeping my word. It's continual. It's not one time, it's all the time. Again, I'm not talking about those moments when you mess up, you fail, you fall. Fortunately, those things happen. We don't want them to happen. We don't pursue for them to happen. We don't look for that to happen. But it's because we still carry in this body a sin. We're ready for heaven. We're fit for heaven. Our souls are ready for heaven. We've been saved. But we still carry around this corpse, this dying corpse, this flesh. And really, that's what we should be praying. God, help us with our flesh, right? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had looking at your word once again. We thank you for the blessing of your truth. And Lord, how that you're growing us and teaching us the truth of the word of God. And though we're not sharing in any of the communion today, we definitely should be making sure that we're dealing with sin in our life on a daily basis. Not waiting till the end of the day or the end of the week or waiting till communion comes around, but dealing with it when it happens. Therefore, if we deal with it when it happens, then when we come to communion, we're not dealing with that. We can truly remember what you've done for us and on our behalf. Thank you for everyone here today, Father. Thank you for what we looked at today. Thank you for a day of being in your word and worshiping you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.